0: Seems like forever since I've been up here. Last two Sundays I didn't get to preach. Connor's Sunday was last Sunday, and then the Sunday before that we had our law enforcement day and had a guest speaker, so I'm glad to be back in the pulpit this morning. I'm glad that you're here in order to be able to participate in worshiping our Heavenly Father together. So thankful you've chosen to be with us this morning. I want to invite everyone especially to be back tonight, this afternoon at 5 o'clock. Uh, We'll be having our outdoor uh, service out here underneath the the little overhang uh, by the offices down on that end, uh, back in the back side. And, uh, you know, it's a good time of year to be outside in the evening time. It's not too hot, not too cold. We'll enjoy being outside and worshiping our Heavenly Father and His creation. And so if you have a lawn chair that you'd like to bring, feel free to do that. We'll be able to set all that up and be out there for our time together tonight. You know, I think it's a fair statement to say that King Solomon was a ladies' man, don't you? If you go to the book of uh, 1 Kings chapter number 11, the Bible there informs us that Solomon had 700 wives and 300 concubines. Now, in addition to the 700 wives, the 300 concubines were his slave servants, his slave girls, if you will, with whom he had a sexual relationship. And so these concubines, you see, they were just a little more than a regular slave, but less than a, uh, a wife. And so he was a ladies' man. But you know, it was a bad thing, because the Bible says these women took Solomon's heart away from God. You see, they turned his heart to idols. The same Solomon, who had built the magnificent temple to God, would later begin to build different places of worship for the idols. And so God is not pleased with him, and God speaks to Solomon and tells him, I will tear the kingdom out of your hand. Now I'm not going to take it out of your hand directly, but I will tear the kingdom out of the hand of your son." And God chooses another king to be the king. You know, it's sort of reminiscent of what uh, God had said to Solomon, I mean, rather to Saul, that he would take the kingdom away from him. but, But he says, I'm not going to take it fully away from you. The tribe of Judah will be there. But God chose another to be the king over what we would know as the northern kingdom that would later become known simply as Israel. God chose Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, who was one of, the, one of uh, uh, the close advisors, one of the servants, if you will, of King Solomon to actually to, to succeed him and to, to be the king. My question this morning is simply this. God, how are you going to tear the kingdom out of the hand of the son of Solomon? Rehoboam was his name. You know, it's sort of confusing because you've got Rehoboam and Jeroboam. They both sound a lot alike. You've got that o's together. But, but Rehoboam, after the death of Solomon, ascended to the throne of his father. And, and Jeroboam and the people, they came to Rehoboam and they said, Now what are you going to do? What kind of king are you going to be? Are you going to be like your father who in his later years put things on us that really ought not be? Now, never mind the fact that God had told them long before they ever got a king that if you ask for a king, they will begin to exact taxes from you and all those kinds of things. There will be a burden on you. But they come to to Rehoboam and they say, What kind of king are you going to be? Are you going to, to be like your father who in his later years you know, insisted on us doing things that we ought not have to do. And so Jared, rather Rehoboam, he calls all of his advisors together. The Bible says he called the elders, the older men, some translations say, he called them together after telling the people, give me three days and let me think about this thing. He called the older men together and he says, what do we need to tell them? The older men said, if you'll be a servant, if you will, if you will act your uh, right and behave yourself and ease things up on the people, they will serve you forever. That's what Brother James read for us this morning. And, and Rehoboam, he listened to them, but he said, you know what, I've got to get some more advice. And so he calls, the Bible says, the young men together. Those men who had grown up with him, you see his friends, the ones of his generation, now he wasn't necessarily a young man as we sometimes counted. He wasn't a teenager. When he began to go and research, you'll find the scriptures tell us that that Rehoboam was 41 years old when he began to reign, and so he's not not that young, if you will. But he listens to the men who he, he had grown up with, and they said, hey, you go back and you tell him. says, my father, you know, he put things on you. But when you look at me, he says, my little finger is thicker than his thigh. I'm going to make things harder on you than he ever thought to do. How was it that God was going to make a change in the kingdom? How was it that he was going to tear the, the kingdom out of the hand of the son of Solomon, King Rehoboam? He was going to do it through generational differences. Through the generations, the young men, they said one thing. The older men, they said another thing. And Rehoboam chose to listen to what the younger men had to say. I think it's a fair statement to say that generations don't always see things the same way, do they? And They don't always look at things and assess things and come up with the same conclusions that that we all would do, generations look at things in a different way. And even more than that, the next generation is always going to mess things up. Isn't that the way we think? The next generation is always going to ruin the world. I want you to listen to something. I find, by sad experience, how the towns and streets are filled with lewd, wicked children, and many children, as they have played about the streets, have been heard to curse and swear, and call one another nicknames. And it would grieve one's heart to hear what bawdy and filthy communications proceeds from the mouths of such. You know that sounds like somebody wrote that in the newspaper this past week, doesn't it? But in reality, it was written by Robert Russell in his book called A Little Book for Children and Youth in 1695. That's not the price, that's the year. He wrote that in 1695. Listen to this. When I see no hope for the future of our people, if they are dependent on frivolous youth of today, for certainly all youth are reckless beyond words. goes on to say, When I was young... We were taught to be discreet and respectful of elders, but the present youth are exceedingly disrespectful and impatient of restraint. And that one too sounds like it could have been written this week, and we could have read that in the newspaper, and would have really fit to what we are seeing in our own day and time. But folks, that was written by Hesiod, In the eighth century B.C., 800 years before Christ, and so when we look at it, the next generation is always going to ruin the world. There have been five generations in the 20th century, five that that historians, you know, pretty well identify. And when we look at them, they are pretty much divided by by birth cycles, by the number of people who were born in that generation. The first generation in the 20th century, we're living in the 21st, but in the 20th century was simply known as the GI generation. It spanned from about 1904 to about 1924. If you notice up there, I've simply written on uh, the screen the number of live births that took place during those years. There were 59.6 uh, million live births from, uh, from 1904 to 1924. They're called the GI generation because of World War I and, and, and the GIs, you know, the men who had gone to fight in that great battle. The next generation is called the silent generation from 1925 to 1945. There were about 55.4 million live births during that time. And that is called the silent generation because for many years there were not very many leaders, national leaders or of any kind, who came from that particular generation that was born in that generation. And so they are identified by historians as the silent generation. And then came the baby boom. The baby boomers from 1946 to 1964 And I managed to get in that one just by a little bit, born in 1964, so I'm a boomer. The baby boomers, there were 75.9 million live births during those years. And you can understand why it's called the baby boomers, because there was such a boom in the birth rate. And then there's Generation X, 1965 through 1979, 51.5 million live births, and then the millennials who began to be born. Most counted 1980 to 85. There's a little variation in that, but for our purposes this morning, we're going to look at the birds between 1980 and 2000, and there were 77.9 million live birds during that time span. As you think about those, and you think about life today, the, the things that we know today, you'll immediately notice that there are two of these generations that stand out because of the number of the, of the births. They were the baby boomers from 46 to 64, 75.9 million. For a long period of time, they were the largest generation. And so, you know, we can, we can imagine that the television advertisers and, and the retailers and all of the, all of the folks who, who stood to make money selling things, they would cater to that generation. And such was the case. If you go back and you research things, you know, everything was sort of pointed in the direction of the, the baby boomers. But then there's generation, I mean, uh, the millennial generation. And when you look at that, notice that between 1980 and 19, or 2000, there were 77.9 million. We baby boomers have slipped to number two. There are more millennials as they are identified now than there are baby boomers. How many of you have ever heard the phrase, well, you know, back in my day, Back in my day, one of these days the millennials will be looking back and they'll say, "Well, back in my day." But what we want to do is play on that phrase this morning, and we want to take a look at the new generation. All of that great big number have a lot of them here, born between sixty, between nineteen eighty and two thousand. We want to look at that number. And we want to come to understand some things about our generation. You know why we need to do that? Because in the next five years, according to surveys and statistics, more than 60% of the major U.S. executives are of retirement age. In the past five years, 87% of millennial workers have moved into management positions. In other words, we're trending to where the millennials are gaining the power. We're trending toward these younger people who are moving into the roles of management, and they're going to be making the decisions. Now, if you just watch the news, that looks really scary, doesn't it? Or, Or if you're watching the news, it could look really hopeful, depending on the generation that you're from. You see, the millennials would be hopeful about that. What are some of the things that we need to know about the millennials? Long before I went to the preachers' meeting this past Monday, we had this uh, lesson planned, and, and and you know it was printed in the calendar and so forth, so you could go and see. But one of the things, one of the topics of discussion that took place this past Monday uh, was the millennial generation. Todd Clifford was asked to speak on that. It was, we had the meeting at 6th Avenue, and Todd was asked to speak on that. And, and he did a pretty good job of defining some things. And so I'm going to have to give him credit this morning for, 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 for giving me a little bit of direction. I'm just sort of borrowing his topics a little bit and expanding upon them. But he said that there are some troubling trends when it comes to the millennial generation. And I'm going to borrow his, his name for it. There's some troubling trends that are coming among the, the millennials. Well, what are they? Well, let me give you a few. Number one, as we think about this, they are the least religiously minded of the last several generations. The least religiously minded. These 77.9, almost 78 million are the least religiously minded of the last several generations. As a matter of fact, in surveys that have been done only about, and by the way, what I'm about to tell you is not just one survey, uh, evidence points uh, from many different sources, only about 13% considered any type of spirituality to be important in their lives. 13%. What does that mean? If we had eight individuals, we had eight of the millennial folks, those who are 30 years old, 35 years old and under at this point. If we had eight of them walking down the street, only one of them would be any amount interested in religious things. One out of eight. That's not much. They are the least religiously minded of the past several generations, nearly two-thirds of them, 65% of this generation have never attended religious services, never been to church of any kind. You know, here in Walker County, we're probably somewhat uh, shielded from this. I wouldn't think that there would be 65% of the people in Walker County who've never been to church, those that age group. But taken as a whole throughout our nation, 65% never been to church. Least religiously minded folks of all times. When asked if they believed if Jesus is the only way to heaven, only 31% would agree to that. Only 31%. And folks, that is at the very heart of Christianity, isn't it? What did Jesus say in John 14, verse 6? I am the way, the truth, and the life. And nobody, no one, no man comes to the Father except through me. If we don't understand that and don't, don't take that, we have missed the very heart of Christianity. It seems that this generation are what we might call syncretists. What do you mean by that? It's spelled with a Y, by the way, not an I. A syncretist is one who takes bits and pieces from a lot of different places. And so they they would think that, you know, you could get different ideas and put them all together and come up with a whole. In their book on the millennials, called The Millennials, by Tom and Jess Rainier, they discuss this matter, and they quote one of the millennials. And here's what he has to say. He says, I really don't think we can say that any one person or book is a real authority. You really have to examine what people say and then decide you could find some truth in the Bible and maybe the Quran, And you could find it in other sources as well, like a book by Billy Graham. Now, he, this guy puts the Bible and the Quran and the books that Billy Graham wrote all on the same level. You take a bit and a piece from here and you put it all together and you come up with some kind of mixed up thought. That's the generation that we're living in. may not be just like that right here, but that's the generation in which we live. Not only are they the least religiously minded of the last several generations, they're financially confused. Financially confused. What do you mean by that? Well, here's one of the things, again, in the book by uh, Tom and Jess Renier, about this young lady who was in college and had an overdrawn check. And, and uh, here's what she said. When my account became overdrawn, I saw charges from the bank. I had no idea what they were, so I called my mom. And she explained to me that every time my account goes into the negative, they charge me a fee. The whole thing still confuses me. You wouldn't think if I had enough money, then the bank would not charge me. No wonder we have so many who are scrambling for socialism, for somebody to take care of me. Almost seven out of ten millennials believe the government should provide for their retirement. Here's another one they're technologically addicted. This generation's grown up with the internet, and I'm not sure that I may have skipped one on your thing there. They've grown up with the internet, cell phones, and social media. One study showed that millennials spend an average of 18 hours a day with their technology, all forms combined. May not be on the phone that much, maybe with the computer, but it all adds up to a total of about 18 hours a day. This generation uses technology to inform itself, to relax, to pass the time playing games and so forth. Sad thing about it is though millennials are the most connected they're losing the ability to form and maintain meaningful relationships. Don't know how to interact with people. They're just not developing the skills. Brother Ted Burleson happened to be at the meeting at the preachers meeting this past Sunday or past Monday. And as you know, brother Ted is a counselor and he was telling about a couple that he recently counseled. And he said, in the, in the counseling session, the husband and the wife were there together. And they couldn't talk to each other. Couldn't answer the questions. They literally texted back and forth in the counseling session. Is the only way that they communicated with each other. And you can imagine, Brother Ted, if you know him, he's just shaking his head. That's not the way it ought to be. Technologically addicted to the point that we can't relate to people. That's a sad, sad thing. They're characterized by impatience. Characterized by impatience. What do we mean by that? You know, when I was growing up on the three television channels that we had, that you got if you went outside with a pipe wrench and turned the antenna. You would get CBS, ABC, and NBC. And if you wanted to watch a series, say you wanted to watch the Beverly Hillbillies or something like that. The only way you could watch the Beverly Hillbillies was to watch one this week and one next week. And if you missed one, if you happened to be gone somewhere and you missed one, you had to wait several months until it came back on and rerun. That's the only way you get it. But look online sometime, Facebook and other places, and see if you notice this. I've been binge-watching. They'll watch an entire series all at one time because of Netflix and Hulu and some of those other things. They'll sit down and watch the entire thing. You see, that's a sign of impatience. What happens when your web page doesn't load immediately? Man, we get frustrated. The generation needs instant gratification. Now that's not new, but our expectation of the instant has become much faster now and our patience has become much thinner. Impatience leads to things like anger, which leads to other sins Such as gratifying sexual desires before marriage, other things like that. Characterized by impatience. If you have this one on your on your sheet, I somehow skipped it on the uh, on the thing. They are also the concept of critical thinking is almost non existent. It may may be backed up on your sheet if you're taking notes. The concept of critical thinking is almost nonexistent. What do we mean by critical thinking? Well, critical thinking includes, but it's not limited to, such things as analysis. By analysis, we mean having the ability to, to put the dots together, to, to connect the pieces of information together in order to determine, you know, kind of where we need to go and what we need to do. It includes evaluation. Being able to, to examine something and, and understand the validity of it. To understand whether something is a fact or mere opinion. Now you know where that one goes, don't you? That one has a hard time, brings a hard time in the church. Because so many would base their beliefs on opinion rather than fact. And as a result of that, they can't, tell, they can't tell the difference. Critical thinking includes logic. You know, are the conclusions justified by the supporting evidence? Without critical thinking skills, we have a lot of difficulty. And, and it all even flows into the church. One of the examples that I had written down on my sheet was this. By the, by the lack of critical thinking, you get things like this. Crime is going up in my neighborhood, and I can't understand why. Well, I've allowed criminals to move in, and I do not want the police to arrest them, and, and I don't want judges to pass judgment upon them, and, and, and we can't stop them. But I can't understand why. Critical thinking skills are lacking. Well let's move on because of sake of time. Hey, there was it was up there. Must have clicked too. Let's go to some positive trends. Some positive trends. What are some good things? This is the first generation that does not see race. Does not see race. Previous generations, you know, generations which I grew up in and many of you here today grew up in, we saw a difference. Races don't mix. There's a lot of prejudice, a lot of heartache, a lot of hurt brought on by that. A little bit later this month, I'm going to be preaching an entire sermon in regards to race, and so I won't say a whole lot here. But how many of us, just let me ask you this question. How many of us understand that Jesus died, or at least one reason he died, was to break down racial barriers? Amen. To break down racial barriers. Don't believe it? Go to the book of Ephesians, chapter 2, 13 through 16. But now in Christ Jesus you who once were far off have been brought near through the blood of Christ for he himself is our peace who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace, and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. Who's he talking about? Jews and Gentiles. Jesus died to break down racial barriers. I don't have time because it's slipping away very quickly, but read Galatians 2 verses 11 through 14. And notice how Paul confronts Peter because he got caught up in the idea of separating or segregating himself. Folks like the millennial generation, Christians have to stop seeing race before we die and lose our soul because of it, just very blunt. Have to. First generation that doesn't see race. Number two, they have a passionate determination to help the poor, those in need. If you listen carefully to a lot of things that they say, a lot of the demands that they make, they're not all bad. Remember what Jesus said in Matthew 25, 34 through 36, that as we stand before him on the day of judgment, he is going to talk to us about something He's going to either welcome us in because of some things, or he's going to send us away because of some things. And some of the things that he lists are these. The king will say to those on his right hand, Come, you who are blessed by my Father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry and you gave me food. I was thirsty and you gave me drink. I was a stranger and you welcomed me. I was naked and you clothed me. I was sick and you visited me. I was in prison and you came to me. Many have been confused about the social gospel, that the only thing we should be concerned about is the here and now and making sure people's problems are solved here. But sometimes we swing to the opposite direction. And we fail to realize the importance that Jesus himself places. And so we really and truly need to have a good, clear heart. And folks, I understand that many, especially those who are Christians, have that same kind of thinking, but we have to be sure that we do. James confronted it in um, relationship to the church. He talked about the poor and the, and the ones who were rich in the book of James chapter 2. And even then, folks had a tendency to run to the rich and run off the poor. And that's all the way through the Old Testament. So we need to be careful. Number three, they desire to make a difference in the world. That's a positive trend, isn't it? Matter of fact, 96% of millennials believe they will do something great with their lives. They don't define success in the same way as past generations, by wealth and popularity and power. They define it as serving others. We've been preaching that for a long, long time in the church. We just need to catch the full extent of it. February fourteenth, uh, February of 2014, Huffington Post ran an article titled, Seven Millennials Who Are Too Busy Changing the World to Take Selfies. I ran across the title of that uh, article as I was doing some research. I decided to click on it. And see what these millennials were doing—that they were too busy to to take selfies. All seven of them had started or were working for some kind of organization, business, or foundation that helped people. Either those with cancer, those in, who needed an education, or some some variation of those. They define greatness as helping others, and so we need to. We need to think about that. I can't help but think about the Good Samaritan when I think of it. Here's another one. They value relationships. Value relationships. Sort of ironic that they suffer from the lack of skills and are necessary to develop and build and maintain a relationship, that they have such a longing for it. But all you got to do is look at some of the modern coffee shops where they gather, spend time together. The typical crowd there is young, technologically savvy, and casually dressed. In most surveys, millennials say that family is important to them. More than 80% of millennials believe they will only marry one time. They're waiting later to get married. They're doing things before they get there. They need some guidance. Isn't it amazing that 2,000 years ago, Jesus built an institution that meets their needs as far as relationships are concerned? What did the early Christians do? Acts 2 44 through 46. Those who believed or together had all things common. They were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. Day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with gladness and generous hearts. That's a picture of what the millennial generation is searching for. Not only that, they reject a slavish adherence to tradition. Tradition. Hear me carefully, there are some traditions that must be kept. How do I know that? I read it in the Bible. Second Thessalonians 2.15 says, So then, brothers, stand firm and hold the traditions that you were taught by us, either by our spoken word or by our letter. 1 Corinthians 11.2 says, Now I commend you because you remember me in everything and maintain the traditions even as I delivered them to you. Folks, it's mere human traditions that must be rejected. The millennials question everything. And I say good for them. That's what I've been trying to get people to do from the time I started preaching. Anybody ever read Acts 17:11? Now these Jews, the Bereans, were more noble than those in Thessalonica that they received the word with all eagerness examining the scriptures daily to see if these things were so. Modern day Bereans is what we need. First John 4, 1 John 4.1 says, Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God. For many false prophets have gone into the world. Listen to me carefully. One of the reasons that millennials reject religion is because so many religious bodies, so many religious bodies cannot defend their practices in the Bible. When they're, at, when they're questioned, when they're asked why, they can't turn and say, this is what God said. Folks, I believe we can. The Bible has stood the test of time. The plea that we have had is the one that's found in Colossians 3.17. Whatever you do in word or deed, do everything in the name of or by the authority of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through Him. Folks, of all the religious bodies in all of the world, we, God's church, is best equipped to give the new generation the things that they so desperately need and want. We are the ones who are equipped to do it best. That's going to take some honest assessment and effort on our part, though. We're going to talk about that this e- evening, about doing some of that. and I, So I hope you'll join us for that evening service. But as we close, I want you to think about what is said in the book of Ephesians chapter 3 at verse 20 and 21. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all we ask or think, according to the power at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus, watch this, throughout all generations, forever and ever. Glory to God in the church and in Christ Jesus. question is, are you in Christ? If you're in Christ, you're in His church. If you're in His church, you can bring glory to God no matter which generation you're in until the day that the trumpet sounds and the Lord comes to take us home. Where are you this morning? Are you in His church? You've been baptized for the remission of your sins, added to the Lord's church, Acts chapter 2? Are you outside of Him? I don't care if you're in the, what generation you're in. I don't care if you're a millennial or a baby boomer or a generation Xer or whatever you want to call yourself. You still need to be in the Lord. Be in His church. Maybe you need to study no more. We'd love to do that with you. Maybe you do know what you need to do. And you want to do that this morning. Maybe you need to come back to the Lord. You know that your life's not been lived in accordance with what He said. Why not come back to Him right now? As together we stand and sing.
1: Jesus is tenderly calling thee home. Calling today. Calling today. Why from the sunshine of love wilt thou roam? Father and Father away. Calling today. Calling today. Jesus is calling. is tenderly calling today. Jesus is calling the weary to rest. Calling today, calling today. Bring him thy burden and thou shalt be blessed. He will not turn thee away. Calling today, calling today. Jesus is calling early calling today. Jesus is pleading, oh, list to his voice. Hear him today, hear him today. They who believe on his name now rejoice. Quickly arise and away. Call calling today.
2: David Seals has responded to the invitation this morning, and David is a really good friend of Tommy Burgett's, and you never know, you never know what asking someone, if they'd like to come to worship with you, what it may bring. You never know. And we're thankful for David as he has the courage to be able to come forward and ask for some help. He needs some help spiritually. He needs some guidance with some things going on in his life. And, that, um, and we'd like to, to help him with that. Uh, the eldership here, the membership here, would love to help him with that. David has gone through some, some tough times in his life. He's lost his wife. Um, He got involved into some some drug addiction. But the best thing about that is, is David has been clear of that for three years. He has some financial issues that he needs some guidance with to be able to help him with that. So, we'd like to ask Brother Eddie, if he will, to lead a prayer on David's behalf And then uh, we're going to ask David to to stay following the the service here. We're going to talk with him and see what we can do to help him. And then uh, we'll move forward from that point. We'd like to ask Brother Eddie if he will at this time. Pray with me, please.
1: Father, we're so thankful that you us.